I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. The last couple of weeks here in Owen Sound, we've been looking at these events that happened with the prophet Elijah and King Ahab. It was a time of unprecedented wickedness in Israel, but at the same time, God reveals himself in a powerful way. Last week, we saw that Elijah returns to Israel with the promise of rain, and then along the way, he encounters Obadiah, and then he meets Ahab, and then He tells Ahab to meet them at Mount Carmel. Carmel. And so we read from 1 Kings 18, verse 20. So Ahab sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together, prophets of Baal, together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, not a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am left a people, a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let them give us two bulls and let them choose one bull for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood but put no fire under it. Then you call on the name of your gods, and I will call on the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it's well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bull for yourselves and prepare it first, for you are many, and call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the bull which was given them, and they prepared it, and called on the name of Baal from morning, even till noon, saying, O Baal, hear us! But there was no voice, no one answered. Then they leaped about the altar which they had made. And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's meditating, or he's busy, or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves, as it was their custom, with knives and lances, until the blood gushed out on them. And when midday was past, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. So all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. Then, with the the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord, And he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seers of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, 
and laid it on the wood and said, Fill four water pots with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Then he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. And it came to pass, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one of them escape. So they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and executed them there. So far the reading of God's holy word. What an amazing story. Let's also turn to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, I'd like to read verse 45 to 49, sorry, 45 to 54. Matthew 27, verse 45, Jesus is crucified, being crucified on the cross. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone, let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Our text this morning is from 1 Kings 18, and our text will be actually what we've already read, verse 20 to 40. I'd like to just read again from verse 36 to 39. 1 Kings 18, verse 36. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice 
that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God, and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I remember a conversation I had some years ago with a coworker who didn't believe in God, and I asked him, what is the one thing that stops you from believing God? And my friend said, if I could see some evidence that he exists, then I would believe him. My friend wanted to see something from God. He wanted to see a visible sign. It wasn't that he was opposed to the idea of God. He just wanted evidence. He wanted to see something. And as it was, he sat on the fence. He wasn't willing to make any commitment. Maybe you know someone like this too. People who aren't really opposed to the idea of God, but they don't really believe he's there. And they certainly don't want to make any commitment to living for him. In fact, maybe you recognize a tendency in yourself to sit on the fence, to worship God from a divided heart, not 100% committing to God's glory in his kingdom, but partially advancing your own glory, your own kingdom. Maybe you give God some of your time and some of your aspirations, some of your uncertainty, but not all of it. Our hearts so often waver, don't they? We, so often we have divided hearts and mixed motives. We want to worship God, but at the same time, we want the best things in this world. We want to follow Jesus, but do we really want to suffer for his name? We want his name to be spread, but at the same time, we want to be famous ourselves. Sometimes we want to sit on the fence. We have divided hearts and mixed motives. But this morning, the gospel comes to us from 1 Kings 18, showing us a God who intervenes, a God who calls his people back to himself to worship him with undivided hearts. And he does this by revealing himself, by showing who he is. On Mount Carmel, Yahweh powerfully displays evidence of his existence, of his power, and of his covenant faithfulness, his love. The same God who had revealed himself centuries earlier at Mount Sinai Now he confirms his power and his love at Mount Carmel. He is a God to be worshipped with everything that we have. And Mount Carmel, it points us forward to another mountain, another conquest, another victory, and another revelation of God. Mount Carmel points us forward to the mountain of Golgotha, to that cosmic conquest against the forces of evil, against sin, and against death. Because there on Golgotha, 
God has revealed himself to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. He is not a silent God, a God who cannot answer prayer. He is not a God removed from this world or distant from it. No, there on Golgotha, we see the greatest intervention in history, the ultimate evidence of God's power and his covenant faithfulness. And the cross of Christ also calls for our commitment. Dear friends, we will see this morning that we cannot sit on the fence. Yahweh is the only true God. He is supreme in every domain. He powerfully answers prayer. And he is the loving God of Israel. So let's examine our text from 1 Kings 18 this morning with this title. Yahweh proves beyond doubt that he is God in Israel. First, we'll see the question which is posed to Israel. Last week, we heard that Yahweh was returning to Israel. He was returning with the promise of rain. Covenant blessing was coming back to Israel. Chapter 18, verse 1, God told Elijah to go to Ahab and announce that rain was imminent. But God also wanted it to be super clear where this rain was coming from. He wanted to show beyond doubt that it was he and not Baal who was the Lord of the sky. That he and not Baal was the giver of rain, the giver and sustainer of life itself. And so Elijah tells Ahab to get all of Israel together at Mount Carmel. Verse 19 and 20 really emphasize that it was all of Israel because this contest between Baal and Yahweh, it's, it's something they all need to see. Something for all of God's covenant people. And the question is something that they also all need to hear. A question for Israel, and it's a question which we're also going to have to answer this morning. In verse 21, Elijah says, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Now this word falter, it literally has the idea of limping, not able to walk straight, but limping between two things, not able to make your mind up. The English idiom would be sitting on the fence. How long will you sit on the fence between Baal and Yahweh? You see, the worship of Yahweh was in a bad state. Ahab had married Jezebel, that ungodly princess from Sidon, from Phoenicia, from that country of Baal worship. And things had really gone downhill after that. Israel hadn't darkened the doors of church for a long time, but instead they'd been going to the Baal temples down the road. The altars were in a state of disrepair. The churches in Israel had turned into empty buildings on the street corner. And it's to these people that God comes with this question. How long will you sit on the fence, Israel? How long will you have a wavering heart, flip-flopping between Baal and Yahweh, one foot in the church and one foot in the world? You can't have it both ways, you know. If Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Follow him means to do what he requires, to follow his ways and to live in commitment to him. Notice the implication of what he's saying. If Yahweh is God, then follow him. 
I remember once when I was taking a philosophy class in university and we were debating the question, does God exist? There were all sorts of technical arguments. Maybe you've heard some of these arguments, an argument from design, there's an ontological argument, and there's lots of other big words that you might expect to find in a philosophy class. Now, philosophy has its place, for sure, but I remember just in that class that this question was treated without consequence, as if it was a mere academic pursuit to find out whether God is real or not, as a technical question with no real bearing on life. If Yahweh is God, follow him, Elijah says. It's not an abstract question. It's a question that determines the direction of your life. It's a question that calls for a response. You cannot sit on the fence. As one commentator said, God is not an idea you play with, but he is a king to whom you submit. God is not an idea you play with, but he is a king to whom you submit. And so we don't just come to church to learn facts about God without following him, but facts about God lead to a life of discipleship, a life of submission to his will. If Yahweh is God, follow him. This wasn't a new idea for Israel. Already when God revealed himself at that earlier mountain, at Mount Sinai, far back in Israel's history, the Lord had said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's a statement which affirms the existence of God, that Yahweh is God, and the consequence is this. You shall love the Lord with your God with all your heart. Follow him. And Jesus teaches this same truth in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Well, this is the question that Elijah submits to Israel. Do you follow Yahweh or do you not? Well, Israel reveals her double-mindedness by not replying, by being silent. What about us? The question also comes to us this morning. Do you follow Jesus do you give your life 100% for him? Or is there something else in your life as well, something that shows you're not completely submitting to his lordship? Are you willing to follow the footsteps of Jesus as he leads down a road which involves suffering? Are you willing to carry the cross that he calls you to bear? Are you willing to be his disciple, to follow him? Friends, you cannot sit on the fence. You cannot answer this question with silence. And this becomes even more apparent when we see the silence of Baal. Young boys like to prove who is stronger when they have an arm wrestle. I'm sure many of the boys here know what I'm talking about. Maybe you've had arm wrestles with your dad. You want to prove who's stronger. Well, Elijah announces a similar contest, a massive arm wrestle between Baal and Yahweh to show who really has the power. It's going to be settled once for all. Elijah announces the conditions of this contest. 
Well, first of all, it's going to happen at Mount Carmel. And Mount Carmel was probably a site for Baal worship. This mountain, it was known for its greenery, for the lush mountainsides and the fertile soils. It's no wonder that such a fertile place became a site for Baal worship. And of course, there's no greenery now after three years of no rain, but this is Baal's home court. So we can see that the odds are already stacked in his favor. Second, Elijah was the only prophet of Yahweh, but Baal had 450 prophets, 450 to 1. Again, the odds are stacked in favor of Baal. And third, the objective, the purpose of the outcome was fire from heaven, which would show that the gods would answer. And Baal was the god of the sky. He was the god of thunder, the god who was supposed to control lightning, fire from heaven. This challenge was right up his alley, right in his domain. And so these are the conditions of the contest. Baal is given all the odds. His home court, way more prophets, and a challenge right in his specialty. And the one more thing I'd like to notice is that there's a theme of sacrifice. Because each respective side is going to bring a sacrifice, and the challenge is going to determine which God will answer, which God will accept the worship, which God is worthy of worship. Is Baal God? Is he worthy of worship? Will he win this cosmic arm wrestle? Well, the odds are all in his favor. But verse 26 shows us that even though they called on him till noon, from morning till noon, there was no voice and no one answered. Baal didn't answer. The heat from the sun, it continued to beat down. There was no thunder, there was no lightning, no fire from heaven. Baal was silent. The heavens declared the silence of Baal. The writer of King emphasizes that. In verse 29, it repeats that there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Elijah presses the point home by mocking them. Shout louder, he says. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. The Hebrew is a little unclear, but it suggests that this is what Elijah said. Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. Or maybe he's having a siesta. This wasn't a totally ridiculous thing for Elijah to say. Because according to their own belief, Baal needed to be awakened. That's why there'd been no rain after all. And so the prophets of Baal are driven into a wilder frenzy. They're shouting, they're cutting themselves. But there's no answer. Because Baal doesn't exist. Baal cannot give fire. Baal cannot answer the most fervent prayers, the most desperate cries for help. This frenzy of activity didn't help. Doing lots of religious things can get you nowhere. It's like climbing a ladder. If you, cl you can climb a ladder as fast as you like, but if the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall, it's not going to get you where you want to go. You can pour out your whole life in service of Baal, on the altar to Baal. You can pour out your whole life to pursue a fulfilled life, a comfortable life in any other place than in the worship of the true God. But if you're climbing the wrong ladder... If you're calling on the wrong God, then you're going to get no answer. It's easy for us to laugh at the idea of Baal, isn't it? Because today we're not surrounded by Baal worship. 
And even the very idea of Baal is, is laughable, especially when you have a story like this. But don't we also live in a world that has largely rejected God? A world that does not acknowledge his rule in every area of life. A world that does not look to him as the God who answers prayer. And as we live in this world, we can also be influenced by the popular culture that we live in. We can be tempted to pursue a comfortable life, looking for nothing more than entertainment. Just being absorbed in Netflix or TikTok or wherever it is that you look for entertainment. And these things can begin to steal our hearts away from God, from acknowledging that He is the true source of life. And today's idols, just like Baal, cannot deliver what they promise. There was no voice, no one answered, no one pays attention. Friends, you cannot sit on the fence. On the one side of the fence is Baal, and 1 Kings 18 shows us that he has nothing to offer. He is not a true God. He has no power in the area which is supposed to be his domain. He cannot answer prayer. He cannot be God in Israel. No, there is only one true God, Yahweh. He is supreme in every domain. He powerfully answers prayer, and he is the loving God of Israel. Elijah begins by calling all the people to draw near. This is going to be a demonstration of Yahweh's power, but more than that, it's also going to be a restoration of true worship. And this restoration of worship, it starts with Elijah rebuilding the temple, the altar, And as he rebuilds this altar, he does it with 12 stones. 12 stones for 12 tribes of Israel. This altar was going to be just like the altar in Joshua 8, which Joshua built when the Israelites came in to the land of Israel, when they entered the promised land. And so rebuilding the altar of Israel reminded the the Israelites of their identity, their identity as a people chosen by Yahweh. The writer makes that clear in verse 31 when he says the 12 stones represented the 12 sons of Jacob whom the Lord had renamed Israel. Now this is a a more than a historical detail. The author is intentionally reminding Israel that they were a special people to Yahweh, a people he had formed. That's why they were called Israelites because their very name reminded them of their identity. And so by rebuilding the altar, Elijah is restoring true worship. He is reminding God's people that all along they have belonged to Yahweh. All along, he has been the loving God of Israel. That was the very origin of their nation. Elijah is calling them back to true worship. Maybe you noticed the way that Elijah builds the altar because he's already stacked the deck in favor of Baal, but now he actually stacks the deck against Yahweh. He digs a trench, he pours water over the sacrifice, and he he does it again and again, so the whole thing is just saturated with water. If you've ever tried to start a fire with wet wood, I'm sure many of you have, you know it's not easy. Elijah saturates the altar. He stacks the deck against Yahweh. And then it's time for the evening sacrifice, and Elijah prays. 
At the time when Israel was normally supposed to sacrifice to Yahweh, Elijah prays, verse 36, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. This is the prayer of Elijah. He prays to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, appealing to the faithful God of Israel's history. He prays that God will let it known that he is God in Israel. It's not only a request for his power to be revealed, but also his covenant faithfulness to be shown. He prays for God to reveal his grace, that the people may know that you have turned their hearts back to you again. The rain was going to come. We saw that 18 verse 1. The rain revealing God's covenant blessing. The rain would come and that God's people needed to know that it wasn't from Baal. Baal was silent. But Elijah now prays that God would reveal his grace in turning his people back to him and that they would recognize that he is their God, that he, in his grace, was bringing rain again and turning his people back to him. And finally, note the repetition in verse 37. Hear me, hear me. Elijah prays, answer me, God. Prove that you are not a silent God. Prove that the drought has been because of your word, your living and active word. Prove that you are a God who answers prayer. Well, God answers, doesn't he? God answers with fire from heaven, verse 38. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. Wow. The fire of Yahweh, that was a rich image in the history of Israel. Boys and girls, maybe you can think of fire in the Old Testament, of God showing himself in fire. Remember that God showed himself to Moses in a burning bush. And maybe you also recall that when the Israelites were at Mount Sinai, there was thunder and lightning, a thick cloud on the mountain, and Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because Yahweh had came down in it in fire. You can read about that in Exodus 19. That was where God spoke to Israel. He revealed himself as their God. He revealed himself in the fire. Another significant moment happened when God set up the priestly ministry of Aaron and his sons. And the very first sacrifice that Aaron made, Aaron, he was the first priest representing Israel. It's recorded in Leviticus 9. And then there was also a miraculous response from the Lord. Leviticus 9 says that after Aaron had made the sacrifice, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from heaven from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. Fire from Yahweh. It proved that he accepted the sacrifice. So fire is a rich image in the Old Testament Israel. And what a powerful way for Yahweh to reveal himself to Israel on Mount Carmel. He proved his supremacy over Baal, that he was supreme over Baal's domain, 
lightning and fire from heaven. He proved that he was God. The divine arm wrestle between Baal and Yahweh has shown us two things. It's shown us, first of all, that Baal is silent. He will not be able to make any rain. But Yahweh, he is the only God. He is the God who answers, the all-powerful God. And more than that, this revelation proved that Yahweh was God in Israel. And that he accepted the sacrifice of Elijah, that he was still merciful to his people. That he was still willing to be their God, even though they had been sitting on the fence. Wow. What a, how majestic and powerful is Yahweh. That he sends fire from heaven to consume this sacrifice. How loving is Yahweh that he hears and he answers. Yahweh is the only true God. He is supreme in every domain. He powerfully answers prayer. And he is the loving God of Israel. And friends, this this contest at Mount Carmel, a magnificent story though it is, it points us forward to another another mountain, another conquest. At Golgotha, a man was hung on a Roman cross, and there a contest was staged, a contest which involved the Word of God Himself, our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross of Christ is the greatest revelation of God's power, His power over the curse of sin, His power to save us from sin, and to turn His people's hearts back to Him. On the cross, God the Father didn't answer with fire. Instead, Jesus was forsaken by the Father. He cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. People thought he was calling out for Elijah, as if Elijah had power to save him. But what Jesus was really saying was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because only these words could capture the pain and the severity of the hell that he bore for us. Because that's what happened on the cross. Colossians 2.14 Our debt has been nailed to the cross. Our divided hearts, our mixed motives, our unwillingness to deny ourselves. All of our sin is in that certificate of debt nailed to the cross. And there the anointed Christ paid for our debt. He cancelled that certificate of debt and he said those blessed words, It is finished. This is such a revelation of the love of God. It's also a revelation of the power of God because there he's defeated our sin and Satan. Colossians 2.15, he has disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. The cross represents the conquest of the Son of God and his triumph over sin and Satan. Christ has triumphed over evil. It was finished upon that cross. And so we see at the cross of Christ on that mountain of Golgotha that God has made the ultimate revelation of his power, his power over sin and Satan, and the ultimate revelation of his saving love. He has turned his people's hearts back to him. And this calls, brothers and sisters, for a response. This revelation of God cannot leave you unmoved. You cannot sit on the fence The cross is the ultimate answer to my friend's indecision to his call for evidence. 
What sort of response does God require? With verse 39, the people fell on their faces and they said, Yahweh, he is God. Yahweh, he is God. They worshipped. They fell on their faces before God's majesty. Just like centuries earlier at that other mountain, Mount Sinai, when God revealed himself, when he spoke to them from the fire, they trembled and stood far away. God's revelation does not leave them unmoved. It led to worship. And friends, the cross calls for the same response. The cross shows the supremacy of Christ over sin and every power. The cross shows us that God powerfully answers the prayers of the saints, the prayers of so many people for the Messiah to come. The cross shows the love of God. He has turned his people's hearts back to him. And so God's revelation at the cross also leads us to worship. The cross calls for a life of commitment, for a life of worship. In light of the mercies of God, says Paul in Romans 12, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. This is the response God calls us to, giving all of ourselves, all of our time, all of our finances, all of our talents, our bodies as a living sacrifice, serving him with an undivided heart. As we conclude this morning, I want to remind you of the conversation I had with my co-worker. My friend didn't think there was enough evidence to believe in God. He wasn't willing to make a commitment. But the cross of Christ is the ultimate answer, the ultimate evidence, the ultimate revelation of God. And so, friends, brothers, sisters, we've seen this morning, you cannot sit on the fence. Yahweh is the only true God. He is supreme in every domain. He powerfully answers prayer. He is the loving God of Israel. He showed that at Mount Carmel, and ultimately he showed that on Golgotha. Yahweh has proved beyond doubt that he is God. And so what will your response be to our awesome God? Amen.